everybody. Here we are in another important and very inspiring, inspirational podcast. So first, let me introduce Bill Dolan. I will introduce him so you can know who he is. And then he will talk to, talk to us about his experience in his career. So first, Bill is an Emmy-nominated TV and also virtual event editor, producer. He has been working as a television, video, and entertainment director with a lot of celebrities. For example, like a piece, Mark Burnett, Maroon 5, and many other world leaders and global brands. As well as these Emmy, Emmy nominations and over like 10,000 productions, videos, and virtual life events. He also wrote a book, which is called The Seven Disciplines of Relationship Marketing, which we will dive into it in just a moment. And also you are, uh, well, everybody knows that he is the president and the creative director of a company called Spirit Media, which he, he also talked about that. So now, Bill, we would like to know that story that took you to where you are now, actually, and also that flight to Nashville where you died, and then it has been the greatest thing that ever happened to you. So please. Yeah, that's. I know a lot of people struggle with that. I said, wait a minute, you died and that was a good thing? Yes. And- <laughs> They say, yes, it was. But yeah, just a little bit of context. So, you know, kind of where I came from that led to the day. First, I was very, very fortunate uh, early on. In fact, it was actually when I was in school, high school, that I started to get kind of an idea of of where I wanted to go. Now, television seemed very attractive. And I thought maybe I was going to be a television reporter or something like that. So when I started going to school and studying it, Um, I realized that I fell in love with behind the scenes. I love the producing part. I love the directing part. I love the creative process. Um, and, and, And that just really started to shape me. And I was very, very fortunate that my school offered internship programs at TV stations. And I was able to get a, an internship at uh, the one of the networks here in our region. And I was in heaven. It was incredible. Um, I got to work with great producers, great writers, great agency owners. Um, and it really was that opportunity, even though I was young, I was actually got hired when I was 20 years old while I was still in college. Um, I would do whatever it took. And if they said, hey, go edit a project, go do this. thing," I would edit a project and I would stay up through the night. I, I remember being at the station one time, probably for 30 plus hours because I was just so consumed. I wanted to work. I wanted to learn. And uh, I might not have been the most creative guy in the world, but I can tell you that I grew up with a really strong work ethic. And I committed myself to work, 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 which ultimately led me growing my career and uh, directing a lot of projects, eventually leaving that, starting my own agency, getting to work with incredible talent, uh, traveling the world, doing a lot of productions. But there was a point where um, I realized, and by the way, I married my high school sweetheart and we start a family. I have five kids and uh you know, there's sometimes we make these these tough decisions. You hear people talk about work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And in my case, it was work, 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 because I'm having a ball doing it. And I thought 
I kind of grew up in the generation two that said, if I go work and bring home money and throw it at the door, I'm being a good husband, a good father. Well, obviously there's more to it than that. And I was slowly realizing that. So I um, took on a new project and that was a documentary because a documentary would allow me to dive into it and then be able to just promote it and then receive residual income. And I thought if I did those and paste those, that would save me from always being on the road and always traveling and always being gone. So I produced this documentary and then we got a call from a company in Nashville. And they said, and this is really important to note, producing the documentary in itself is a great achievement, but if it's never distributed, <laughs> what's the use? And so I knew that it was a very, very important for them to have a distributor. So when we got a call from a distributor, it said, not only are we going to work with you to get this in the market, but we're going to pay you a nice upfront fee um, and advance of royalties. I thought, oh my gosh, I, it's like, I just, I just won the lottery. This is fabulous. So on January 29th, 1999, I remember thinking to myself, today, my life will never be the same again. Today's going to be a new beginning. So I hopped on that plane and about 20 minutes into the flight, I started to feel ill and I couldn't put my finger on it because I'm never sick ever, ever, ever. And, but, and my best friend, Timothy Greenwich, who's this incredible, incredible friend. And he's, he's a great gospel singer. So he's a giant guy. He's built like a, a, a American football player, giant guy. So I turned to Tim and I said, Tim, something's not right. And that's the last thing I said before my eyes rolled back in my head, my arms flopped by my side and my heart stopped. No. Wow. And he had never studied CPR, you know, how to really do all that, that stuff, but he had seen chest compressions. So he started doing chest compressions on me. And when that didn't work, he picked me up and he put me in the aisle and he started doing more chest compressions and trying to get me to breathe. And um, I don't know exactly how long it took, you know, a couple of minutes or something like that. But as Tim described it, he said he pulled back his fist and he said, I was just about ready to break your ribs. And he said, I pulled back and you took a breath. Wow. And it ultimately resulted in, a, in an emergency landing. And I was diagnosed with something called malignant neurocardiogenic syncope, which means malignant means you can die from it. Uh, uh, neuro is brain, cardio is heart, and syncope means out of sync. And it's, they don't know what causes it. They don't know uh, uh, if there's medicine or anything. All they know what to do is to keep your heart going. So they end up putting a pacemaker in your chest. And your, your brain stops sending the orders for the heart to keep running. That's, that's exactly. what exactly. Exactly. And so I got a pacemaker put in my chest and um, six times a day, my pacemaker has to intervene. It's monitoring and it has to intervene. So my heart rate gets to a dangerously low level and then it goes and it beats it up to 90 beats per minute, holds it there. And then it goes back into monitor mode. 
And so if any time during this interview, I flop over, give it a minute, I'll be right back. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, please. Yeah, that's, yeah, a like, that's a good one to start. Yeah, okay. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, so, if you, so if you hear some, like, some great idea, then a, a thumping sound, uh, just wait. Uh, <laughs> okay, we got but, it, we got it, we got it, Stephanie, get ready. Yeah, get ready. <laughs> Here's the thing, you know, I, I joke about it now. Part of the reason I can joke about it is because it it had a profound impact on my life. I mean, number one, um, I had a profound after death experience. And so spiritually, it changed me in a profound way. Um, but also the effects afterward give you time to reflect. You know, and you start asking questions like, why me? Why do I get to have my next breath? Why did I come back? Um, and how do I use this life? And it taught me some really important lessons, not just about my life, but, but all of our lives. You know, that I think we take so much for granted. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, I mean, we all got up this morning. We all took a breath. And I am so thoroughly convinced that I didn't earn my breath. I didn't deserve my breath, but it's a precious gift. And when I know that my next breath is a precious gift, it, it begs you to ask the question, how will you use that breath to be a gift to others? And for those of us that are in the creative space, We've been given an incredible gift, not only the gift of breath and life, but a seed of creativity, something that we can imagine things that don't exist, or we can take things that do exist and make them more beautiful, or we can shed light in places that people don't know or understand. Um, and we can tell stories and metaphors that allow people to see and understand things that would never understand. And we get the key to the back door. And when I say that, it's the rest of the world talks through language and through the front left cortex right up here. Mm -hmm. This is also, by the way, the great gateway, because this is where someone tries to sell us something. We go, nope, I don't want it. You know, someone tries to pitch you some idea. Nope, nope, nope. It's all right there. Because I've got this logical thing and a big barrier that says I'm going to reject things that I don't completely embrace. But the back door is wide open and it's a door that's a gateway to feelings and emotions. And that's where stories are. That's where images are. That's where pictures are. And so for those of us artists have been given the key to the back door, the hearts of potentially millions of people. The question is, one, will you use those for good and Will you take the time to develop those skills to go to that back door and to bring a transformation in the lives you get to serve? That's the power of creativity. And that's why I'm so thankful that I not only got another breath, another breath, but I get to actually have a breath with you today. Oh, it's so beautiful. You, you worked in Walt Disney TV. Right, Bill. I worked with ABC, which is wholly owned by Walt Disney. And so I worked through that network, mostly, mostly as a live director. 
um, which turned out to be one of my gifts was actually being a live director. That's why I ended up working with so many different uh, performance artists. It's not because I made their music video. I actually worked with them on their live shows. And uh, that's really where I grew up and in that field. So after that, after working with those companies, you decided to build your own business and to uh, push forward in the entertainment industry. Is that how it worked? The, the real story was I'd married my high school sweetheart and we're trying to figure out how to have enough money to have kids. <laughs> that's really what it was. And uh, I, I was looking just as maybe a side hustle, something that I could do on the side because I loved directing. I loved where I worked. Um, and I try, in fact, I tried a few things. Someone said, Oh, you should try this marketing or sales thing. And I tried it and I was horrible at it. I mean, horrible at sales. And then someone said, well, you should maybe do financial planning. You could do financial planning, you know, in the evenings and work with people on that. And so I got my securities license. And so I would go into the studio and work during the days. And at night, I try to go out and sell financial services. And I was horrible at that. I mean, like really bad, really, really bad, you know, but the beauty of that process is just reminding me that most of the time, a trail of failures often can lead to that one door of success. And you have to be willing to walk that trail and be willing to fail and be willing to make mistakes. Now, I thought I was going to be crazy successful. No, it wasn't my desire to walk a trail of failures. But what ended up happening is I had a friend um, who I met along the way who said, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're a director, right? And I said, yeah. He said, we do live events, these, these large corporate events and conventions and things like that. And it seems like it's lacking direction. Would you be willing to help us out? And I said, sure, let me see if it, if, if it makes sense. I didn't realize it at the time, but doing a live event uh, was just like doing live studio work. And I turned out to be really good at it. And that was really the birth of the company was me failing, failing, and getting an opportunity and realizing oh, that makes sense. Now, I kept doing that for a while, and that's where the company grew. But I was afraid to leave television because I had benefits and insurance, and exactly. our family had grown from one, two, and, um, and then my wife had twins. I often say our third child came as a pair. And that's crazy, just crazy. I mean, the demands. And I went to the TV station and I said, can I take a little time off so I could kind of help my wife? And they said, oh, that would be so hard. Do you realize what about your commercial clients? And what about the show I was directing at the time was number one in its time slot, which is like crazy important. And so I decided I would just take a little time off and then come back. So I took this tiny bit, like a couple of weeks and then came back. And I was exhausted. I was physically exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. And I was burning. Have you ever heard the term burning the candle on both ends? You know, where it's just going to consume. I was burning the candle on both ends and in the middle. So in other words, I was destroying every resource of energy I had. And I ended up, I won't go into the gory details of it, but I will just say this, that I had an encounter with a writer 
during one of our shows and any other time rested bill would have been just fine. And I would have pushed it off, but instead I decided to push him and uh, uh, it resulted in the station firing me just after my twins were born. Wow. And so that wasn't my plan a either, but it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because I can tell you, I was probably afraid, not probably, I know I was, I was afraid to leave the station. I was afraid to leave live television because it paid me. I'd kind of gotten used to the routine and I was afraid of the unknown. Could I really live on this business that I had started doing on the side? Could I make it? Uh, did I have the business skills? Um, what would, do I have the reputation to do it? I mean, I had all these questions. And all those questions were thrown out the window when all of a sudden you're you're out on the street and realize I have to either make a living, either find another job, or I have to make this business work. So I went home. First thing I did was I went home and I apologized to my wife. I said, I don't mean to put you in this position, honey, but I am so committed to trying to make this work. And remember, I told you um, I grew up with a work ethic. That's where I really put it to work. And the business, and I say it's by the grace of God, exploded. And what was a part-time thing turned into a very, very successful agency with companies calling me from all over the world doing projects. And one project led to another project, led to another project. So the 90s really were crazy for me, um, even right up to my death moment. And then after my death, we made some, they've been very good, but we made some adjustments that really had to do with, instead of measuring things by dollars, we started measuring things by, are we fulfilling our purpose and making a real difference in the world? I think it would be very nice to hear your take on, on those talented professionals in Latin America, that they don't see that many opportunities, but at the same time, they might not see it because they don't have the the view, the complete view that you're just explaining, mm -hmm. and they don't have the, their heart open mm -hmm. in order to receive the blessings and at the same time uh, walk in the right path, mm -hmm. um, and maybe try to try to self motivate uh, in order to to decide what to do every day. So, what would be your advice for those talented professionals? Well, I have first one big one. And it's something that I write about in my book, and I call it the authentic purpose compass. I think a lot of us are at decision points in our life. I mean, every day we make decisions to continue the path or change the path. And sometimes the lack of decision is a decision. And rather than just let things happen... One of the things I did when I looked back at my life is I realized that even though I was praying for a map, you know, going to God, say, give me a map. I want to know. Give me a map because we still want to know. We'd rather know than not know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think God answers that prayer, not with a map, but with a compass. And there's three aspects that you can look at in your own life compass. The first is passion. And recognize that if you have passions, make a note of it. 
um, and recognize and honor those passions. <clears throat> but keep in mind that not everybody has aptitude for those passions. And that's a really important consideration. Uh, there's an old saying that says, if you work your passion, you never have to work another day in your life. But if you don't have the aptitude, you'll work every day trying to figure out how to make it work. But if you look at your aptitudes, for example, when you were a small kid, there's probably things you might have done that you realize I'm pretty good at this. And maybe you saw other kids that were gifted. I know when I grew up, there were kids that were naturally athletic, the sports kids uh, that were really good. Uh, there was kids that were really good at math. There were kids that were really good at history. And there were kids that were good at art. And you could always tell them, and say, wow, they're really good. But there's a challenge for a lot of those kids. And maybe you're one of them where someone said, hey, you're really good at this. And you are good at it, but you're not passionate about it. And a lot of parents will push you into that type of thing because they want you to have a job. <laughs> and they're afraid that you're not going to make a living if you keep chasing your dreams or something like that. And it's important to know that if all you do is work in your aptitudes for which you have no passion, then you will have a job for the rest of your life. But that's exactly. it. Exactly. But if you pursue passions for which you don't have aptitudes, recognize that you have a hobby that feeds you. And maybe this won't be your career, but it will help feed your career. Okay. Now, those are two pieces of the trajectory. There's a third piece, and that's experience. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You can look back and you can say, what are times that you saw the convergence of your passion, your aptitude, and it played out? And all of a sudden you go, wait, I did that. I might have did that. And it could be small and it could be big. But over time, when you look at those three things together, they start to shape and become a focus. And if you're in that place where you say, I have an aptitude for the arts, and you say, I have a passion for storytelling the arts, and maybe since I was a little kid, I've been telling stories, or since I was a little kid, I took pictures, or since I was a little kid, I sang, or ever since I was a little kid, I danced, or whatever it is, there's a really good sign that you're destined to be a creative. You're destined to be an artist. And what that means is two things. One, you are sitting in one of the most blessed, wonderful, incredible opportunities to change the world that ever existed anywhere. But number two, it's one of the hardest things to be because usually creatives feel deeply. They're sensitive. They get their feelings hurt. Sometimes we're just afraid to, to be ourselves. We're afraid to share our work for fear that people are going to tell us we're not good enough. And sometimes the worst critic of our work is ourself. Yes. We're not good enough. And guess what? You might not be good enough yet. Because every great artist, before they're great, are bad artists. They start somewhere and they become better. They become better, but you only become better with practice. 
and to the degree you can find a mentor. Mm -hmm. If you can find mentors, they're a little ahead of you on that path, learn everything you can and practice. Mentor and practice, mentor and practice. That is how you move from wanting to be a great artist to becoming a great artist. And that's what you need to focus on, not the idea that I'm going to produce the greatest masterpiece tomorrow. But you want to work on becoming that person that will produce that masterpiece. So the act of becoming that artist is going to be that process. Now, a lot of people, because we compare ourselves with perfection, maybe you're one of those people that said, maybe I can't do it. Maybe I don't have the stamina and the strength to do it. Or maybe you're just tired of being hurt. And it's kind of like, I remember, um, I mean, when you have someone that hurts you over and over again, you want to just walk away. And that can be your passion for the arts. When the, the fear of failure and the fear of not being able to achieve all that hurts you so much. What happens is you take that dream and you bury it. Because sometimes it's easier to go to the funeral of your dreams than have to stare at what's not happening. And I just want to tell you, and, and I'm here not only as an artist, but as a man that died. And I'm back because I believe in the power of resurrection, not only in our life and our spirit, but our dreams. And your dreams have the power to be resurrected if you're willing to take a breath, know that it can hurt, and know this can be hard, but it's the only real path to bring back that that could be the greatest destiny you could ever imagine. And it's only in creating that that you also create an incredible legacy that could impact maybe millions. Yes, yes. Thank you, Bill. It's so sentimental and so mm -hmm. inspirational and so deep, all the comments that you have seen, all the all these crazy things that people don't know and they need to just set in and just begin to talk to themselves and what they really want for themselves, not for others. So that's really important. Um, Bill, um, talking about uh, what you have mentioned, that you mentioned about the book, about the compass and, the, and that kind of thing, I would like to know what was the why in making the book and also, if you can shortly explain the three most important, so the, from the seven disciplines that you have wrote with, what are the three most important things, the three most important disciplines within the book? Mm -hmm. And who are the people who inspire you to in doing this book? That's a great question. And I should be able to answer that in only an hour. No, just, <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll, uh, first, writing the book really was. Uh, rooted in a few things. Number one was the recognition that, yeah, if you've been given the gift of life today, how will you use that life to be a gift to others? You know, and I realized that it, it took me 20 years to write the book. 
You know, so it's not like my, oh, here we go. (laughs) I'm a slow learner. And it took me a while to really absorb everything I'd learned and then start applying it. But the thing that that moved me was two really big drivers. One was that I wanted to use my life as a gift to others. And I felt like if I could share the story and share these principles, I could make an impact on others and hopefully create more than just a, a marketing plan, but to create a movement that was truly based. The, the book is called The Seven Disciplines of Relationship Marketing, that relationship is not just central to marketing and central to media or central to creativity. It's central to life. And um, that when people really grasp that and the power of that and live that, what a difference we could make in the world, profound difference we can make in the world. So that was one big driver. The other is, um, you know, what I was traveling a lot, like every week, boom, 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 bouncing around. Sometimes we get sloppy around the people that we know and are close to us. And I couldn't tell you that morning that I left, did I go to my kids and say, I love you? Did I tell my wife before I saw her at the airport that I loved her? Did I tell my parents, my friends? I couldn't say that I did. Sometimes we assume, oh, you know, I love you. You know, I care about you. But there's something really powerful in letting the people in your life know that you genuinely love them. And this book became a love letter, even though it's it's a really practical book. It's a way of putting what I felt were the most important things that we can learn about life and about business and in the in the process of of making a lasting difference. And if I die tomorrow, this note will always be a love letter to my friends, my family, my children, and to anybody that picks up this book. Um, And I will never have regretted not telling somebody that I genuinely love them. What would be the kind of mindset that people need to have in order to get, to be the leading role of their lives? Mm-hmm. And create their own, because everybody has their own best-selling movie, their own best-selling, because every, everyone is their own. I mean, we can we can write our story in our book, but it will be like a huge book in writing all our stories, each one of us, right? So it will mm-hmm. be that kind of mindset that people need to have in order to see, okay, I want to have, I want to write this book and I want it to have like a bestseller. How can I do it? Or I want to have this movie and I want this movie to be, incredible what would be the kind of mindset for people for the young people that are watching well that's a great gateway really to finish the last question you asked and that was what are the principles i teach from the book and there's seven disciplines i think are just foundational but the first one is maybe the most foundational and that is um what i call the discipline of mission and whether you have stories or whatever, and you say, oh, I want to write this bestseller. There's a powerful question that everybody needs to ask themselves and to get clarity on. And that's why. 
why do I exist? And wrapped in that is to try to get understanding about your purpose. Because if you start to get understanding of that, and I don't expect people to flip a switch and go, oh, this, my purpose is this. It takes work. Because if we don't know our purpose and we're not living a purpose-driven life, we're living somebody else's purpose. Exactly. And right now, I know that uh, pretty much in the in the Western Hemisphere, uh, South America, North America, and even into Europe, this is a very market. These are very marketing-driven cultures, and it's not uncommon for us to receive. 5,000 to 10,000 brand impressions a day. And each one of those brand impressions really has a secret message. And the secret message is this, you're not complete unless you buy my product. You're not complete unless you wear my perfume or buy my clothes or wear my shoes or drive my car or whatever it is that they're selling. In that constant barrage of of messages telling you that you're inadequate without it is a lie. But yet we continue to hear that lie and we allow that to bounce around in the echo chamber of our mind and our heart. And the only antidote to fight the lie that says you're inadequate is to recognize you're powerful. That right now, You are more powerful than you could imagine. And after my death experience, I can tell you that my personal belief is that the creator of the universe is madly in love with you. That you have a powerful, powerful purpose and a destiny to impact maybe millions of lives. We don't know. And so when you recognize, start to recognize that and absorb that, and then you can try to get clarity on your purpose. And I do, I walk walk people through in the book and I do uh, sheets that you can download to kind of work on it. I encourage just as I would as if I'm doing a motion picture and we've got a series of major projects with, with networks going on right now. And guess what we do? It's the same thing I encourage everybody to do. We form what's called a mission manifesto. And it starts with, why do I exist? Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Get to that why. And you can't just throw it out. You have to be deep. In fact, I found when I work with people and we get to the why part and we really flush it out, I can tell we're getting close because they usually start to get tears in their eyes. Because you realize there's something deep, deep, deep inside you that maybe you've hidden, you weren't aware of. We're going to peel that back. And when you can live in that, the next question that we get to live now is what are the missions we must bring into your life that will fulfill that purpose? Now, is it important to have a best-selling book if it aligns with the purpose? Now, what I often find is most people want a best-selling book, not because of their purpose, but because they feel so inadequate that they think if I have a best-selling book, I'll finally be adequate. And most of the time, without that clarity of purpose, what we're doing is we're constantly trying to prove ourselves we're worthy to be loved. So we set goals and dreams and benchmarks and awards and trophies, and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But most of it is just 
a scorecard to try to convince ourselves that we're worthy to be loved. And the biggest person we're struggling to get to believe that we're worthy to be loved is ourselves. It's not always because you're trying to press somebody, but if somebody would be impressed, you might actually think that you're worthy to be loved. And there's a breakthrough when you realize you are that you're not only worthy to be loved, but you are incredible and powerful and unique. And there's nobody in the world that can do what you can do. No one in the world that has a perspective that you have. No one in the world that has the life experience you have. And no one that can speak your story the way you can. So there's enormous power in that. And then from the missions, then you get into vision. Because when you can really have vision that's built upon purpose, it's a game changer. In fact, I don't know about you. When I was a little kid, uh, my mom used to buy puzzles. And they'd be like 500-piece puzzle or 1,000-piece puzzle. But you know, before you ever put together a puzzle, what's the first thing all of us do? We look at the cover of the box. Because now these puzzle pieces make sense. Exactly. But if you don't know what the cover of your vision box looks like, you spend all of your life just accumulating puzzle pieces that people convince you you need to have. Oh, you need this piece. Oh, you need this piece. You need this piece. And then if you're like me, when I was looking, I used to mix up the puzzle pieces and sometimes from other puzzles. And I would take the edges and I like push them down as hard as I could. Like, and I bend the edges. I know this is going to work because we want it to fit. But if we're playing the wrong puzzle and we're mixing up the puzzle pieces and we're just trusting that anybody that tells us you need this puzzle piece, guess what? You have a mess. But the power of purpose in those missions gives you a breakthrough into that next step of actually saying, what does it look like when I'm fulfilling my purpose? What does it look like when I'm living my missions? And of course, from that comes also a framework of what does it look like and how will I do it? And that's where the value discussion comes in. What are your greatest values and how will you live those? In fact, one of the worksheets that we have, we use at our agency because people come to us all the time. They say, oh, we want to do this branding project and we want to do this. So we hand them the sheet. I think we call them brand values. And it's just, it's a list of adverbs and adjectives. But we ask them, circle the ones that apply to you. And they start circling. We said, now they might do 10 or 20. They said, now pick the top 10. Now pick the top five. Now pick the top three. And you're synthesizing more than aspiration. It is what they really believe they are and are called to be. And those values then become guideposts. And some, if you're, if you're a creative, do three, four, five values, put them out and hold on to those and put them in front of you. If you're a company, there's a lot of folks, uh, management consultants that believe you should have three. At our agency, after my death and everything experience, we have one. And our value is 360 degree love. Because we really believe that every human being is worthy to be honored and respected. And 
treated with kindness and care and courtesy, and to recognize every human being has intense value more than they know. And what we want them, and it doesn't matter what their position is, no matter if you're uh, the president of the company or you're brand new at the company, if you're an old person or a young person, it doesn't matter that we want to treat everybody with a 160 degree absolute love and caring and kindness and respect. Uh, Bill, we want to thank you for this time. We want to thank you for everything that you just mentioned. I think you just uh, made a, a great uh, D-turn in uh, jumping from one of the subjects, the main subjects related to entertainment and marketing, and then you just use your experience, your, your death experience and your life experience and put it into this subject related to how to uh, find purpose in the life, which I think is one of the greatest uh, advice that our people in Latin America will hear. And, and they really need, we really need it in this part of the world. So um, Bill, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. And everybody watching, uh, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, we will put you in contact with Bill if uh, something uh, jumps up and they have any question whatsoever. And I hope that this is not the last time we, we speak, Bill. No, I think we're friends for life. <laughs> I know, Steph, Stephanie, I talked so many times to get this going. I mean, I, I, talk, I talk to you more than I talk to my aunts and uncles. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, Stephanie, one, one last word. Well, thank you for... The time, because the time is, I mean, it's a valuable thing of every human being spending, I mean, which with whom you're going to spend time with. And thank you for spending in here with us in being an inspiration and all those words of inspiration to many young people, including me, to just keep it, keep going with our life and have that why and the passion that we need to feel. But thank you so much, Bill, for the time and for just giving your heart here in the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm here for you. Anybody needs me, I'm here for you. Mwah. It's tough to be in business today. Competition is steep. Markets are getting more diverse and there's no fewer than thousands of ways for you to communicate to your market. That's why the seven disciplines exists. It gives a business owner clarity who their target markets, their best target markets are. What are the messages that are going to reach them? And what are the methodologies that are going to produce results over and over again? We've got a system that can make a profound difference. Having had the opportunity to apply it and really study it gives me a thousand percent confidence that this truly can be life-changing for any business, for any leader that decides that they want to apply this to their life and their business. The seven disciplines of relationship marketing at its heart is really for business people. It not only helps you do business better, it helps you do it more profitably, but it helps you do it in a richer, meaningful way that not only transforms the relationships you have with your clients, but it transforms your culture from the inside out. People sometimes struggle with what is their purpose? What is their mission? Why are they doing it? People get on the rat race of life and let other people decide what their scorecard is. The seven disciplines teaches that you need to understand what your scorecard is and what your values are. And it is rooted in the fact that over many, many years, I've worked in marketing, I've worked in media, 
And I had a pretty profound experience that caused me to reevaluate everything. The seven disciplines were really born on a flight to Nashville on January 28th, 1999. Even though I flew all the time, that morning, something didn't quite seem right. I was flying with one of my best friends in the world, Timothy Greenwich, and it got so bad that I turned to Timothy. And I said, Timothy, something's not right. And that's the last thing I said. Before my eyes rolled back in my head, my arms went limp, and my heart stopped. Now, I had a pretty profound after-death experience, but it made me question everything. And I looked at everything I had done in marketing and media, and I said, is this the right thing? Am I doing it the right way? I really do feel in my heart that I didn't just discover this, it was revealed to me. I was literally looking at the blueprint for the greatest marketing and communication plan in history.